electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. I'll be one of my friends. I'm just trying to save you a little money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate and teach about days like today. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Look, I know it's tough, but on days like today, you have to remember that, unlike what you heard, we do not live in China. We do not work in China. We don't even bank in China. Even as our stock market sometimes gets hit on China, with the Dow tumbling 498 points, S&P losing 1.54%, and of course the Nasdaq sinking 1.58%. The house of pain. The truth is, it makes no sense for our markets to get hammered by civil unrest in China. We're less intertwined than you might think. Now, some of that's a legacy of the Trump administration's fanatical attempts to get us to source our manufacturing literally anywhere else. But most of it, most of it really does come down to the fact that the Chinese government makes it real difficult for foreigners to do business over there. While most tech companies can't escape the reach of China, that's really it, aside from a handful of consumer plays, and really at a handful, and of course, Apple. But today felt like 2011 to me, when we used to sell off on worries about the European debt crisis, worries that had nothing to do with us at all. Wall Street was convinced that our banks were joined at the hip of theirs. That wasn't the case. Then once Europe turned things around, well, we were up, up and away. I don't know if China will fix its problems, which comes down to the misguided zero COVID policy. I, I don't know if they can do it anytime soon. I do know that taking your cue from the chaos is a big mistake. I'll give you some more on that later. With that out of the way, let's talk about this week, okay? The week ahead, which is all about two themes, the fall of oil and the rise of online shopping. The fall of oil comes down to one question. Will the Strategic Petroleum Reserve truly buy back all the oil it's sold at much higher levels? Or will it be piecemeal and half-hearted so as not to move oil up? No matter, you'll want to own some oil stocks just on the possibility after the stunning decline that OPEC Plus cuts back production. 
which is why we've been buying them for the Chapel Trust. And you can follow every move we make by joining the CBC Investing Club, which I implore you to do, because I think you need to know our view on these oils, among, among other things. While the Chinese economy is so dramatically, I believe the strength of the U.S. travel alone will buoy the price of crude, as long as the government's really replenishing its reserves, and as long as OPEC Plus moves in a positive direction for oil. As for the other theme, the rise of Internet shopping, and that, that leads us to our game plan. Let, let's start there, okay? Uh, today's Cyber Monday. I think we've seen a gradual transformation to a non-brick-and-mortar-based uh, shopping tradition. Think Etsy or Shopify. It caught fire and locked out. And unlike most so-called COVID stocks, you know, the usual DocuSign, Zoom, Peloton, this continues to be strong this day. Now, look, I've disliked the retail stocks, online retail, for r- roughly a year now. But at this point... I like the group again, as business never got soft. The comparison was just too difficult, but that's over. We'll have instant Cyber Monday sales figures tomorrow. The comparisons will be good. You can play it with Etsy or Shopify or even better. Play it with Kramer fave Lou Lemon. Starting after the close Tuesday, we hear from a parade of companies in the area I'm most concerned about in the entire stock market. Then I think is the weakest and is going to remain the weakest, and that's anything connected to the cloud. Now, it kicks off with Workday, which has been taking share in human resources and financial planning. Not that it matters to the stock, because it could be tough for them to top that last spectacular quarter. Then there's CrowdStrike, which is almost as consistent as Palo Alto Networks when it comes to cybersecurity. Remember, though, Palo Alto pivoted from pure growth to profitable growth. That's why the stock's had a nice run this, move, this month. Can CrowdStrike make the same pivot? be interesting to see. Next, well, we only have one major Fed event this week, but it's a big... Jay Powell speaks on Wednesday. I think he'll just obfuscate. Not, I don't mean that in a mean way. I'm just saying that there's an unemployment uh, number on Friday, okay? And it might be really difficult for him to be able to talk uh, aggressively about what he wants to do. Uh, that would be good for the market if he did. But, uh, frankly, after today's pacing, I think people might be gun-shy. I think they might be too nervous to buy tomorrow ahead of Powell's talk Wednesday. Also Wednesday, we hear from Hormel, which is, is so much more than spam. Even as spam is iconic, the food stocks have stopped going down, led by PepsiCo and General Mills. Maybe that strength extends to Hormel. Special nod to food inflation here, but also to those who think we'll have a recession. You know why? Because spam does well in a recession. We'll get results from Petco, too. I'm, I'm getting worried about this pet health play. As management's been talking a very good game, but hasn't been able to deliver. Each time Petco reports, it gets pummeled. I fear the pattern continues. After the close, we get a remarkable assemblage of enterprise software plays again. Ground zero for the weakness of this entire market. Salesforce starts it off. I think this one's a keeper, even if this quarter may be slow. I'm warning you ahead of time. The dollar's now headed in the right direction. That's very good for them. They've got a big-name activist firm pushing them to do better. That's very good for them. Big buyback, too. Salesforce has been the second-worst performer in the Dow this year after Intel. I do not think CEO Mark Benioff will tolerate that for much longer. And more important, I do think he has the levers to pull to enhance the bottom line. Okta. Oh, my God, Okta, another once red-hot stock. It's, it's bumping heads with a host of cybersecurity outfits, even as they used to have the identity space to themselves. COVID, I, I mean, it, look, this could be a very difficult quarter. Boy, I used to love having those guys on. I don't know what to say. Like so many companies in Silicon Valley, I think Okta's going to have to learn to live with less. And you know what that means. It means layoffs. And I don't want to predict layoffs at any one company. It's just that because I know that's very frightening for anybody who works there. I'm saying that all of these companies 
Uh, this table of employment is very high at these kinds of companies. Let's put it that way. Splunk, that's another one, where we get a progress report on new CEO Gary Steele's turnaround efforts. He did great for his shareholders when he ran Proofpoint. We have to see what he can do for Splunk. Remember, the whole digitizing and analyzing contingent has been hated for over a year. That's about all it has in its favor. I don't know what turns it around except real earnings per share, not profits adjusted for stock-based compensation, and illusory metric that never should have been allowed because it obscures the real earnings, or lack thereof. At the same time, we hear from Snowflake. I keep telling people this one's run for the long, the long term, not for this quarter. I think Snowflake sets uh, itself apart. They offer a great value proposition, basically renting out the cloud and analytics ca- capability. But it could take a long time for the potential customers to catch on. Although I'm a believer this market certainly isn't as patient as I'd like them to be. Uh, uh, one more. Uh, PVH, Calvin Klein, Tim and Tommy Elfiger. A little TV shy there. I wish we could find out more because apparel's starting to do a little better. Street loves Dollar General, all right? Uh, but, but have you been to one? I mean, I love the stores, but almost nothing in them is as cheap as it used to be. Nevertheless, the analysts are like a dog with a bone on this one. But not even matter what they say on Thursday morning. They love it so much. Thursday morning, Kroger also reports. I'll bet it'll be good, but any, why anyone really care about it because of the state of their Albertsons acquisition? I think the deal's in jeopardy because Lena Khan's FTC is just not merger-friendly. Here's a winner. After the close, we have Ulta Beauty. And from what I can tell, the chain's shooting the lights out. They own the segment, and I don't think it'll quit. I'm looking for a very big beat from the retailer, almost as consistent, by the way, as Lululemon. Great management, great prices. Another tough one that I like, Marvell Tech. Fantastic chipmaker, great exposure to data center, networking, storage. The semis are such fallen angels, yet Marvell's incredibly well run, with exposure to the strongest markets. But uh, look, I'd love to be just telling you to buy it, but... I don't see the stock catching fire until we work through that chip glut. Even if Marvell is relatively little exposure to the worst areas of weakness, which is consumer. The most important event this week, I buried the lead, perhaps doesn't come out until Friday, which is non-farm payroll report. We need to see the unemployment rate go higher while wages remain stable and we get meaningful layoffs in some industries. If that doesn't happen, if the numbers are truly strong, then the Fed heads will come out of the woodwork and start talking about how we need more enormous rate hikes. Bottom line, if the labor report's too strong, we could have a distinctly suboptimal weekend capping off what might be a tough week. Seasonally, it tends to be a little bit weaker before things really take off again come December. David in Ohio. David! Booyah, Jim. How are you? Booyah, David. I am good, David. I had a good Thanksgiving. I hope you did, too. I did. Thank you. My question for you is maybe taking some profits. Uh, ExxonMobil, I'm up over 150% from when I bought it. I'm thinking of maybe selling half off and taking some profits. You must do that. Let you it... must do that, David. Don't Remember, uh, greed is bad. Discipline trumps conviction. You're up huge. I say ka-ching, ka-ching. Yet maybe even I would say for third, you want to go half. I'm not going to fight you on that one bit. Congratulations. And how much money people can make in this market? I mean, look, the labor report is key this week. If, if it's too strong, we could definitely have a suboptimal weekend, capping off what might be a rough week. So I'm just giving you a little warning that this is a tough one going into this day. Man, money tonight. There's competition in the brick-and-mortar fitness space. But which company could reign supreme? I'm revealing my power ranks in this space. You want to know it. Then we've had strong performances from the major averages since mid-October. So where could they be headed? And could the Dow continue outperforming? I'm going to take a closer look at sharing what I think you could expect 
heading into the next year. And by the way, it's pretty shocking. Oh, and then Deer jumped higher on earnings last week. I'm taking a closer look at the farm equipment maker to make sense of exactly what drove the strength. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Fact. Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact. Smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash mad money. Just go to Indeed.com slash mad money right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash mad money. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. As we collectively struggle to fit into our post-Thanksgiving pants, we need to talk fitness. Not too long ago, if you wanted to buy a fitness stock, you had a couple of pure plays, Peloton for home workout equipment, uh, digital classes, Planet Fitness for good old-fashioned gyms. That was pretty much it. Back in July of last year, I told you to stick with Planet Fitness and stay the heck away from Peloton. Since then, the former's up a few bucks, ladder's down 92%. Late last year, though, the landscape changed as we got a series of gym IPOs like Exponential Fitness, Lifetime Group Holdings, and another one that's too small to talk about on air. Now we've got three potential gym plays, and I've been wanting to circle back to this group after speaking to their CEOs in recent weeks, give you a read of things. So what's the best brick-and-mortar gym stock? Planet Fitness? Lifetime Group? Exponential? Let me tell you how to pick the one that you think is right for you. Now, each of these chains has a different concept. Planet Fitness is a low-cost gym. 2,353 locations in all 50 states, not to mention District of Columbia, Puerto Rico, Canada, Mexico, and Australia. 
Planet Fitness bills itself as a, quote, judgment-free zone. They don't want their customers to be intimidated. Low intensity, low cost, only 10 bucks a month. The other thing about this one is that they got a franchise model, uh, which has allowed them to expand very quickly, but also means they make a lot less per gym. While this, the stock hasn't done much in recent years, Planet Fitness had a remarkable multi-year rally from its IPO in 2015 before, uh, you know, through early 2020. That was before the pandemic hit. Since then, it's been kind of choppy, although in the last two months, the stock's rebounded 54 to 76 and change. Not bad. On the other end of the spectrum, you've got Exponential Fitness, which owns 10 distinct brands. Now, some of them, a little upscale, maybe you heard of them, Rumble Boxing Gyms, Pure Bar, uh, Club Pilates. It's basically a roll-up of disparate fitness concepts. But the one thing they have in common is they tend to be fairly high intensity. Exponential also has a franchise model. They buy these brands. They let the franchises grow them rapidly. Now, I've got to tell you, we had, the, they, they, we had them on the show not that long ago. I thought they told a terrific story. Now, this one's from the IPO class of 2021. Shocker. Exponential came public at 12, and within five months, the stock had climbed to the mid-20s for pulling back to 13 and change earlier this year. The stock rallied again in the spring to a new all-time high, just under 27 bucks. For another sell-off, took it to a new level, $11. What a roller coaster. Uh, since then, Exponential's been moving higher, kind of a herky-jerky way. Climbing $21 today, fueled in part by the great recorder they reported earlier this month. Pretty terrific performance for recent IPO, although that's a low bar. But I have to, I, I, this one I am drawn to, I have to tell you. Now, how about uh, Lifetime Holdings? Lifetime Group Holdings, excuse me, I remember the old names. Which you spoke at the beginning of the month, we went to see them. Lifetime runs a chain of high-end, company-owned gyms. They pitch themselves as, as country club-like facilities. I agree. Got premium price, too, running $190 per month on average. Way more expensive than $10 a month to pay at Planet Fitness. Then again, you can't go to Planet Fitness for a spa treatment or a haircut. Use one. You might consider a lifetime membership money, uh, uh, money well spent. Once uh, you see the facilities, wow, we checked one out. Brand new location, uh, one Wall Street right down the block. I have to tell you, I was blown away. Unfortunately, lifetime stock has been a lot less impressive. It came public at 18 last October, ran up to 23 and changed its peak in November, then spent roughly a year getting clobbered. It finally went by, by bottom at $8.75 earlier this month. Since then, it's rebounded 12 and changed, thanks to, in large part to a terrific quarter they reported a few weeks ago. Kind of astounding because people are looking for a dog. So how do we go about comparing these three gym classes so you know how to make up your own mind? All right. First, you look at the numbers. We'll start with growth because these are all growth stories. Planet Fitness has 8.2% same-store sales growth. That's the key metric in the most recent quarter. That's a little weaker than expected. Wall Street was looking for 7.7% next year. By comparison, Exponential had 17% same-store sales growth, although the analysts are only looking for a 4% increase next year. That's because they've got really tough comparisons. Lifetime Holdings had 25% same-store sales growth, making it the best of the bunch, and the analysts are looking for 13% gain next year, and best in class. Unicross another story. Planet Fitness has 2,353 locations. They think they can eventually go to 4,000 over time. Exponential's got 2,193 studios. Nearly as many as Planet Fitness plans to put up another 500 in the uh, new year. They can cruise past Planet Fitness's long-term target within four years. It helps that they are smaller, more boutique locations. They kind of fit in everywhere. Lifetime's gro- growing its footprint much more slowly because they own all their gyms. Uh, they're not just bringing in franchisees. Right now, they have 156 locations, and they're planning to add, a quote, I, I quote, I say 10-ish plus new clubs annually for the foreseeable future. 
I like measured growth, people. Now, each of these fitness chains has private equity owners at one point. That I'm not crazy about because they tend to hang out and jack up the leverage. We got to so therefore we have to check up the balance sheets. Exponential's got the cleanest balance sheet by far, with just 134 million dollars in debt. Planet Fitness has two billion, and Lifetime has a 1.79 billion. Uh, but Lifetime has a much higher leverage ratio, and that is not ideal. Finally, let's talk strategy. This is more subjective. In some ways, Planet Fitness has the safest strategy with its ultra-cheap memberships and franchise-based business model. They're the least likely to take a big hit if we have a severe recession. It's only 10 bucks a month. As for Exponential, I like the diversity of the model, which lets them quickly take advantage of the latest fitness trends, very much set up for growth, which is why we recommended this one early and often. They typically charge per class. They're not sure if that represents a risk as the economy slows down. Maybe people cut back. Finally, Lifetime Group, it caters to a very different customer base. This, let's just call it the rich person's gym. I like that they own their facilities. I like that they're expanding gradually. I love the same store sales growth. Not thrilled into the move into apartment complexes, but we got to wait and see how that works. Bottom line, I think Planet Fitness can grind higher over time. Exponential Fitness is a higher risk, higher reward stock with ambitious growth plans. Could be a lot of upside if they can pull it off. As for Lifetime, I want to recommend this as a value play because it's the cheapest by far on next year's numbers. But they got to clean up that balance sheet. This one will look a lot better if they can deliver on their margin expansion plans next year. They have money's back after the break. Coming up, a deep dive index check. Dow, S&P, and navigating the NAS. Stick with Kramer. The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge, and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. so worried about this decline because it's become increasingly clear that we're dealing with a whole new market. The last month and a half has been truly fantastic for a host of high-quality stocks. I guess you probably would have called them one time the blue chips. Yep, after spending nearly a year in the doghouse, we've had a nice run since uh, mid-October. Back on October 13th, the major averages put in their most recent low. This was a day we got a slightly hotter than expected consumer price index reading for September. After initially opening lower, we looked under the hood, realized things were getting better, 
and the market put on a major rally. Fast forward to November 10, we finally got a cooler than expected consumer price index number, and the whole market soared with the averages putting in their best single day performance since the spring of 2020. But this rebound is not evenly distributed. That's the key point I want to make right now. From the recent respective lows on October 13, the Dow Jones Industrial Average has soared a remarkable 18%. S&P 500 has gained 14%. Tech-heavy Nasdaq's only up about 10%. That's the new pattern. See, the Dow leads. Everything else lags. Saw it again last Friday. When the Dow gained a half a percent while the S&P was off slightly, you might have been like in a turkey-induced coma, but the Nasdaq lost half a percent. If you look at the whole, the, the course of this whole year, it's really rather amazing. Dow's only down about 7%. S&P lost nearly 17%. Nasdaq tumbled more than 29%. Talk about where not to be. Now that we've only got five weeks left in the year, it's worth thinking about why the Dow's been holding up so much better than the other averages and, and whether it can continue, frankly. I think this is the most important story of 2022. The Dow was the last of the major averages in the stock market. The Dow was the last of the major averages to peak. Its top came in January, not last November, when so many of the high flyers peaked. And it was the first to bounce back. On Friday, the Dow made its highest close since late April, when Wall Street started freaking out about a inevitable recession as the Federal Reserve ramped up its rate hikes. We've basically erased these losses. Look at this. We've erased the losses. Uh, that tells you something, doesn't it? Nobody's talking about it. Remember, as I've been saying for roughly a year, Tech is ground zero for this decline, and it's not going to change this week. Richly valued software-as-a-service stocks, financial tech stocks, newly minted IPOs, SPAC names, these these things have all been eviscerated as Wall Street turned against growth. This is the first group to feel the pain in a high-inflation environment where the Fed rapidly raises interest rates. We just hadn't seen such high inflation in so long, so we didn't know what to do. First, because growth stocks are the most vulnerable to inflation. Look, if you own something that trades on its potential future earnings down 10 years, right, 10 years down the road, and well, inflation makes those future dollars a lot less valuable, doesn't it? Second, these unprofitable companies are the ones that most desperately need to raise more money. And when the Fed tightens, it's so hard to borrow or sell equity. Think about it. Have there been any secondaries you know, or any companies trying to raise money in the actual market? So when the Fed declared war on inflation last November, I told you to get the heck out of anything speculative and circle around the wagons around real companies. The kind that you probably heard this if you remember the investing club. So I'm sorry to repeat because I said it over and over. You're looking for companies that make stuff or do stuff and can turn an actual profit and return it to the shareholders, or at least some of it. The Dow Jones Industrial Average is full of old-fashioned companies that make things do stuff for return capital. There are 30 companies in this index, and they represent the old economy far more than the new economy. The Nasdaq, on the other hand, is full of those speculative enterprises that have become totally toxic. And the S&P 500 is kind of a mix, right? Which is why its performance is somewhere in between the Dow and the Nasdaq. But that's not the whole story here. It doesn't fully explain the Dow's incredible performance over the last six weeks. From the close on October 12th, the last close before the bottom through last Friday, 23 out of 30 names in the index were up double digits. Eight were up more than 20%. Six were up more than 30%. These people are huge moves. And some of the biggest gains were in stocks that many investors didn't want to touch a couple of months ago. Boeing, Boeing's top performer, up 32% since October 12th. One of the worst-run large-cap companies on Earth. The mismanagement doesn't matter, though. we got a phenomenal travel boom here. And airlines all over the world are desperate for their new planes. Then there's two really quizzical ones I bet you kind of blow your mind. 
J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs saying not long ago, nobody wanted to touch the financials because Wall Street figured we're headed for a severe recession. That means way more bad loans for J.P. Morgan and a dead capital market for a business for Goldman. But both companies reported better than feared results with little to no bad loans to speak of. And now their stocks are both up 30% since the bottom. 30% since October 12. Well, you know what that tells me? I think it says the recession fears may be, uh, I'd say, evaporating. Caterpillar's word. Oh, talk about a classic smokestack stock. They, were, they reported a terrific earnings beat in late October. Remember, they came on the air and, wow, what a story. Telling a tale of insatiable demand, including lots of new business coming from last year's huge bipartisan infrastructure bill. When I look at what's working and what isn't, it sure feels like the market's anticipating a soft landing for the economy. Don't you hear that? The stocks are saying something different from what the chattering classes are saying. Otherwise, the cyclicals, the companies that depend on a strong economy, they wouldn't be able to rebound like this. We've gotten encouraging inflation data, and there have also been signs from the Federal Reserve that they'll scale back the pace of their rate hikes, even if they are done tightening altogether. In other words, there's a growing possibility that the Fed can get inflation under control without totally wrecking the economy doesn't hurt the commodity prices are way down from their highs earlier this year. At the same time, it turns out that many of the classic cyclical stocks, frankly, aren't as cyclical as they used to be. Caterpillar has got so much exposure to federal infrastructure spending that it can trump a slower economy. The aerospace players like Boeing or Honeywell, which we own for the Travel Trust, they're flying thanks to the insatiable demand for travel. Third key factor, many of the industrial stocks that populate the Dow Jones Industrial Average were highly exposed to huge swings in commodity prices, as well as the supply chain problems that have riddled the global economy that you hear about endlessly on air. But during this latest earnings season, we've heard from company after company that those supply chain woes are going away. That means they can get under, uh, their costs under control with gigantic positive, even if they're also coping with a softer economy. Fourth, many of these Dow stocks have a lot of international exposure. So what have they been hobbled by? This insanely strong dollar, as I call it. In recent weeks, though, the dollar's finally pulled back and pulled back hard from its highs, which instantly makes these overseas operators more profitable. Hey, by the way, this is something that Carly Garner, one of our, our great technicians that we do from off the charts, predicted in an off the charts segment just a little over a month ago. Oh, man, what a home run call. Fifth and finally, the decline in the long-term interest rates since late October has been a major boon for the Dow because this index is full of dividend stocks. For example, IBM sports a 4.5% dividend yield. That was a lot less attractive when you could get a risk-free 4.3% yield for the 10-year. But now the 10-year is well back to back to 3.7%. IBM's payout looking a lot better. Here's the bottom line. As we head into the end of the year, Wall Street tends to crowd into the biggest winners which is why I expect the Dow to keep outperforming the NASDAQ and the S&P, at least until January, possibly even a lot longer. Hey, let's take calls. Let's go to Kenneth in Ohio. Kenneth. Hi, Jim. Third-time caller, club member. I have a company that makes uh, chip equipment. They uh, have nearly 90% of the market. They're headed for... um, nearly a monopoly in the extreme ultraviolet lithography market. The beta is pretty high at 1.8. The PE is to 38.7. But these these guys are making a ton of money. They have a wide they have a wide moot. Their stewardship's exemplary. Okay. They're a Dutch company. Uh, the company is ASML. The ticker is also ASML. Okay. If you like I, it, I, I like have to know. Too, Kenneth, I love first of all that you're a member of the club of steward. 
I happen to love these guys. As a matter of fact, love them to the point that we understand that the United States simply what doesn't want, you know, has been blocking. It's Dutch company, as you said, blocking the sale uh, to China. But I've got to tell you, as much as I love that, I am not touching the chip stocks until this glut is over and the glut is not over. I don't think it'll be over until January. So I don't want to jump ahead and suggest that ASML is the, the right place to be. Okay. I expect the Dow to keep outperforming the Nasdaq and the S&P at least until January. Wall Street likes to go where the biggest winners are. This rebound is not evenly distributed, people. Now, there's much more mad money ahead. Deer have one of the greatest quarters I've seen this year. I teased this morning on Squawk on the Street. What's making it so strong? You gotta know. I'm digging into the details. Then as unrest continues in China, I'm taking a real close look at exactly what you need to know and why what's just too big to ignore but maybe a different conclusion from what you're thinking. And all your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. Tonight, we're catching up with some big stories that we missed last week. They're out for Thanksgiving. And nothing's bigger, as I teased this morning on Squawk on the Street, than the incredible quarter we got from Deer on Wednesday morning. Now, this is a stock I've been pushing for a while now. First, because Deer is a real company that makes real things and generates real earnings. Then, because Russia's invasion of Ukraine pushed up crop prices, creating a tremendous bull market in anything agriculture, including farm equipment. On top of that, Deer's also got this earth-moving business that benefits from the big bipartisan infrastructure package is finally going to be kicking in. It's the year 2023. It's going to be amazing for this. But even I didn't expect the quarter to be as good as the one we got last Wednesday. I was shocked. Deer delivered a tremendous sales and earnings beat with a magnificent forecast for 2023. More importantly, management told a great story on the conference call. That's why the stock jumped 5% last Wednesday. As the analysts scrambled to raise the price targets, it's why I think Deer is more room to run. Of course, it's not like this thing came out of nowhere. There's a reason the stock's now up almost 29% year-to-date during a time when the rest of the market's been trashed. In a way, Deer was very obvious. Agriculture boom, okay, plus infrastructure bill equals buy. But there's nothing wrong with obvious. I love obvious. As long as you're not too late to the party. And based on the quarter we just got, I am betting there is a lot more upside to be had for deer. Yeah, a lot. First, let's talk numbers. This year, okay, we've gotten used to stocks that rally on better than fear numbers. We even call it BTF, uh, better than fear. They only look good relative to low analyst expectations. That is not deer, people. These guys posted 37% revenue growth. Their key equipment sales came in nearly a billion dollars higher than what Wall Street was looking for. They delivered a beautiful 33-cent earnings base off a $7.11 basis. Every segment of this business had better-than-expected sales, production, and precision agriculture. That's what really shot the lights out. Precision, pre, precision agriculture, of course, is what a lot of people would think about. What that means is that you can have tractors without people. People cost money. Yeah, and that was the business that really did well. Uh, turf, that's part of it. Excellent results. Only construction and forestry was more mixed. A small sales beat coupled with a modest earnings miss. The best part, though, 
was the core production and precision agriculture division that I just mentioned, which had a big increase in both volume and pricing, resulting in nearly, this is a staggering number for an old line company, 60% sales with Deere. This is the kind of quarter we've been expecting from Deere's core business since the spring, when Russia invaded the breadbasket of Europe and crop prices soared. How about the forecast? Deere's guidance for the 2023 fiscal year was strong across the board, thanks to positive farm fundamentals and a surge in infrastructure spending. These guys like to break out their outlook for each of their end markets. For the most part, they're expecting modest growth next year with large agriculture possibly uh, up high single digits. But more importantly, Deere sees its own businesses outgrowing its end markets, in some cases dramatically because they've still got excellent pricing power. They're the best there is. Hey, I got one. I mean, I can't. I mean, I love it. I mean, I, I, I know how to start it. I can lift it. I get the thing going and stuff. I mean, they're impressive stuff. You got to get the thing going up before you can drive it forward or else it stops. There, there's a lesson for you. I knew I had something. I knew that I had something. In terms of numbers, managers talking about 12 to 19 percent net income growth in 2023 with a Huge surge in operating cash flow, which could double year over year. That's a big deal. Deere had to cut its cash flow gu- guidance multiple times this year. I mean, it was very painful. But this forecast suggests that the cash flow wasn't being lost like some of the skeptics thought. There were a lot of shorts in this name. It was just being delayed. The best stuff, though, comes from the conference calls always. Right at the start of the call, Deere's investor communications manager, Rachel Bach, explained that the company's finally been able to ramp production and clear out some of its partially completed inventory. They've dealt with their supply chain woes. At the same time, their order books remain full into the back half of next year. I don't know anybody else has that kind of visibility anymore. CEO John May, one of my new heroes, explained that they've got their house back in order and businesses on fire. Deere's crop care early order program filled up in two months. Why is that so interesting? Because it usually takes five or six. We also got more detail on the company's end markets. On agriculture, the director of investor relations, Brent Norwood, broke it down. And I quote, stocks to use ratios for key grains still remain very, very low. While exports from the Black Sea region are expected to be down about 40 percent. End quote. 40 percent. That is staggering, isn't it? Then he goes on. The industry has not been able to meet demand due to supply chain constraints and demand continues to outpace supply. And we see that in how quickly our order books fill up and historically low dealer inventory of both new and used equipment. It's also evident in the fleet age, which is well above average. Holy cow, this stock is great. In other words, the current moment is paradise for the farm equipment makers, and there aren't that many of them. How strong is the demand for this stuff? Listen to this, quote, our order books really serve as the best indicator, though. Not only are they extending into the third quarter of 2023, but the velocity in which they fill remains really encouraging for us. Recall that our order books are still on an allocation basis. So when these orders ship, they generally retail right away. And almost all of those machines have a customer's name on them when they go down the production line. End quote. I've never seen it like this, people. In short, farmers around the world have a voracious demand for ag equipment. Deere's finally started to catch up with them by resolving supply chain and production woes, which completely obscured the demand side. How about the small agriculture and turf business? Okay, according to CFO Josh Jepson, quote, livestock and dairy margins remain above historical averages. End quote. Of course, we know that, right? Then, quote, additionally, dealer inventory to sales ratios for mid-sized tractors are below normal levels as demand is continued to outstrip supply. End quote. See, again, 
I'm giving you this not just as a to reason to buy deer, but to what, tell you what really bullish language sounds like. This is not that tech stuff, which is that if only this or only this or only this or only this or only this, this is happening. Finally, there's the construction business. While housing and non-residential construction have softened, Deer sounded very enthusiastic about oil and gas capital expenditures. And they're looking forward to next year when the big infrastructure bill really kicks in. This is just an all-around great story, people. In response, the analysts rushed to raise the price targets, but I'm betting the stock has more room to run. Deer sounds confident about the future precisely because their order books are full. Tremendous visibility into how much money they can make next year. Pretty much everything that's going into production right now, already a buyer lined up. Hey, there are no inventory problems here. And even after the agriculture boom peaks, it'll take a while for dealers to refill their inventories. Best of all, though, even though the stock has vaulted 32% since the end of September, Deer still sells for just 16 times earnings. This is 16 times earnings. It's not as, as definite as I'd like it to be, but you get the point. Um, making it slightly cheaper than the average stock in the S&P 500, which trades at 17.2 times next year. So this is 16. The average stock is worth more. It trades at a higher level, but isn't as good. So let me give you the bottom line here. Got to work the horse in, huh? Here's the bottom line. It's not too late to buy deer after this incredible run. The quarter was just that good. Honestly, this is one of the most encouraging conference calls I have heard all year, which is why I anointed it this morning as the best call of the quarter. So Mad Money is back. Get to the break. Coming up, Kramer takes your calls, and the sky is the limit. It's a fast fire lightning round. Next. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Ski deck on the lightning round. We're going to start with Jeff in Massachusetts. Jeff. How you doing, Jim? Huge, huge fan. I have a question yes, about a mining you, stock. Okay. Um, Rio, R-I-O. What are your All thoughts right, now, on Rio that, Rio is friend? a story company. It's a great company, but you need to see commodity inflation come back. I will say it's a great hedge against long-term inflation, though. I'm not going to fight the idea. Let's go to uh, Angel in Nevada. Angel. Hey, Mr. Kramer. I just had a quick question. I know you didn't like this stock before, but how is Neo? What do you feel about it? Uh, uh, you know, it's Chinese stocks. Uh, Chinese stocks, no good for me. And that one seems very dicey. I need to go to Jason in California. Jason. Booyah, Jim. This is Jason, third-generation California commercial fisherman. We do not like wind power, but we love solar. In-phase energy I've been buying since the low 40s. Does it have more room to run? Do you ever see them making a U.S. facility like uh, Taiwan Semiconductor is going to be doing? What do you think, Jim? This is uh, In-phase. In-phase. Right, in-phase. Uh, look, I, I'll tell you, this thing is just being driven by sh- just flat-out orders, and it is doing so well. And every time it's down 15, 20 bucks, I want to come on air and just say, you know what you got to do? So let's stick with it. I understand windmills very controversial. I've got some friends who totally want me to look at the windmill issue and see what it does exactly to your business. So I'm not alone on this. You're not alone. And I I thank you for the heads up. Let's go to Jimmy in my old state of Pennsylvania. Jimmy! Hey, Jim. How you doing? Thanks for taking my call. Of course. Thank you. I have a question about Lucid, LCID. 
too speculative. Again, you know, remember, we're not recommending stocks. This has been a year now. Not recommending stocks that are losing money if we can avoid it simply because it's just too darn hard. And I'm worried for you. Let's go to Paul in Texas. Paul. Thank you, Kramer. In part, thanks to you, I am up 30% during this difficult year. Looking at a company oh, that's man, that's Q3 fantastic. By, by 38% earnings per share, it beat revenue by 7%, has year-over-year revenue up 22%, year-over-year net income up 88%, year-over-year diluted EPS up 90%, and year-over-year profit margin up 54% with positive outlook guidance. Best part? Well, but you remember, they did, recently, they, 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 I agree with you, but they were concerned. There were people who were concerned that the, what's the stock? It's uh, DICOM Industries, uh, ticker DY. Oh, DICOM. Oh, no, no, you're right. Why is it down? I mean, I don't know. I thought the quarter was good. Uh, I think that DICOM's okay. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the lightning round. Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Coming up, there's no tiptoeing around China. What's the market's ideal approach to the East? Kramer conquers the question next. We're now hearing about unrest in multiple Chinese cities. People taking to the streets to protest the endless lockdowns mandated by the government's, frankly, ludicrous zero science-based COVID policy. Every time something like this happens, every time you get chatter that the Chinese regime might be in danger. These stories drive me nuts because as much as I wish the Chinese Communist Party would get ousted, history says they'll aggressively crack down the protesters and they're going to get away with it. Honestly, we've seen this move before. I don't know if you see. Remember. Back in June of 89, a much weaker Chinese central government was challenged by hundreds of thousands of protesters fighting for an end to cronyism and a more democratic country, Tiananmen Square. At the time, there were many people within the government and the People's Liberation Army, or PLA, who sympathized, actually agreed with the Tiananmen protesters. The demonstrations went on for seven weeks. They were widely covered in the West, and the media fell pretty, really fell pretty, uh, the same kind of wishful thinking, exactly the same kind of wishful thinking that we were getting today, okay? Lots of speculation that the regime could be in trouble, and there might be larger protests or even high-ranking politicians stepping down. Instead, uh, instead, the Chinese Communist Party sent in the army tanks on the streets of the capital and they crushed the protesters. According to their numbers, only 200 people were killed. Although, according to Western estimates I've seen, there's numbers as high as 10,000. Since then, we've never taken another Chinese protest seriously. Until now, apparently. But the times are very different. China's always been an authoritarian state, but these days it's become a full-on autocracy. And that autocracy was just ratified at the most recent party conference, where she had his predecessor unceremoniously booted out of the building, live TV. In 1989, China was an authoritarian uh, state, but it was more ruled by committee. The leadership was split between the reformers and the hardliners, lots of factionalism. That's not the case today. She is president for life, and he controls the People's Liberation Army with an iron fist. The highest ranks of the government are filled with his stooges. No amount of protests are going to change anything. She knows how to viciously crack down dissent. Hey, take what we did in Hong Kong. 
Yet every article I read about China makes it sound like the government's just days away from toppling. So what does this have to do with us? I think the vast majority of investors would love to see some liberalization from the Chinese government. But right now, the only thing at stake is the zero COVID policy. That's it. It would be fantastic if these protests result in a more rational public health policy. That's the best case, though. Nothing else will change. If there are mass imprisonments or killings, we'll be the last to know. China, China tells what they, what they want to hear, what they want us to know, and no more. Even with social media, they're very good at censorship. We're simply too naive when it comes to totalitarian regimes. Of course, given that China's the most important variable in this market, outside of the Fed, earnings, and the war in Ukraine, it is worth thinking about what we really want. Do we want a China that snaps right back with a reverse-engineered mRNA vaccine that actually works, causing commodity prices to trade up furiously? What does that mean? That would mean that the Fed has to crack down with more aggressive rate hikes. Remember, oil has been tamed during this period. But that goes out the window if the Chinese economy comes back. The metals have been sold and they'll get rabid. On the other hand, we get big gains in Starbucks, which Chapel Trust owns, Nike, Apple, which the trust owns, not to mention China's own stocks. We have almost every investment firm saying positive things about Chinese stocks. Nobody cares about this as a totalitarian dictatorship. Nobody. Every time there's a downturn, new people come on air and say all sorts of good things on China. With the code that they expect the economy to reopen as soon, 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 as a way to deflect the questions about repression. In the end, though, China's too big a market to ignore, which means it's too big a nation for our government to truly chastise or any other government beyond denying them some high-grade semiconductors. But there's a huge human cost to doing business with the PRC. And if these protests keep growing, you're going to get a front row seat to everything that's wrong with this regime and how the world gives it a pass because that's just plain good for business. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise to try to find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Cramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.